flip over in your Bibles or the bulletin to Genesis chapter 17. And I probably would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to go there because we will be uh, bouncing around a fair bit today. pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your promises, and you are so kind and and gracious to us, and and we fallen sons of Adam have been made sons and daughters through our elder brother, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for this. We magnify your wisdom this morning, and, and we worship you because you entered into a gracious covenant with us, a sinful race and made us a holy nation unto you. All glory to you, Father, God of all grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell, Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to God, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from the foreigner who is not not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, and he shall he has broken my covenant. This is God's word. You may be seated. So I come to what for me is a daunting sermon preach, and that's a sermon about baptism, and one 
focusing primarily on the meaning of baptism as well as the baptism of infants. And I thought it would be helpful for us to go through this topic um, because by my count there's two people in the room who were both born and raised in a Presbyterian Reformed church who baptize infants. And I thought there might be a few questions as to why in the world would we do such a thing. And I thought it would be helpful for both you and I as I have probably not struggled with any doctrine more. Uh, This is a daunting topic, and it's such a broad Bible topic, and and intensely doctrinal, and I've I've always found it to be difficult, but also glorious. And so uh, we enter into a a topical sermon this morning on uh, baptism and infant baptism, and I will just say I've I've been watching this documentary on Netflix about World War II, called World War II in color. They've updated the color, and it's it's really a broad overview of World War II. You get kind of the, the sweeping movements of the, the the armies and so forth, and you get a good picture of the, the overall what happened in World War II. But, but there's so many details, and, and really lots of questions arise as you go through this. Um, and th- this is that kind of a sermon. It's a 30,000-foot view, uh, as I said in, in the title, baptism in broad strokes, because it is such a detailed um, subject, it has to be broad. So this morning we'll ask, uh, what is baptism, and and why should we apply it to babies? And probably more vitriolic ink has been spilled over this issue of baptism than just about any other baptism or, or topic in the church, but it's important. You know, we might ask, why would we preach on something that can be so divisive and, 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 you know, split up the church? Well, baptism is important. Baptism is a means of grace. If the Reformers are right that a true church is a church that preaches the word, rightly administers the sacraments, and and rightly administers church discipline, one of those is the sacraments. This is an important thing in the church. And ultimately here, we're talking about who is and who is not a member of the body of Christ. And that is important. So let's let's get into uh, what is baptism. And we'll spend really most of our time this morning defining baptism. Because when we answer that, I think we answer the question, should we baptize infants? So, my very, very simple definition of baptism is that it is the New Testament sign and seal of the covenant of grace. The New Testament sign and seal of the covenant of grace. So to understand this definition, we have to start at the beginning and and ask, what is the covenant of grace? We have to go to the beginning of the Bible. God relates to humanity, to, to people, Uh, through covenants. He's made two major covenants with man. The covenant of works, which is the covenant he made with Adam. Adam was the mediator of the covenant of works. And the covenant of grace, of of which Christ is the mediator. And they are distinguished between each other by their mediators, by their covenant head. So you might think, well, there's, there's covenant with Adam and then Noah and Abraham and, and Moses and David. There's a lot of covenants, not just two. 
Well, the covenant with Adam was mediated by Adam as the covenant head. All of the rest fall under Christ as the covenant head. So there's two covenants made with God's people, or made with people in general, and the covenant of grace made with God's people. So the covenant of works was mediated by Adam. Adam and his offspring were to have life. That was the deal. As long as he was obedient, they were to have life as long as they didn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we, of course, know he failed. He broke the covenant and plunged us all, every single human being, into sin and death. <clears throat> and it's amazing. I don't think we understand the gravity of this. And it's, it's shocking. But God then, from there, made a promise. And he really, it's interesting, made the promise to the serpent in the garden. But it foreshadowed this second covenant, this covenant of grace and its mediator, he said, of the seed of the woman, the, the, who, who would be born of the woman, he said, he shall bruise your head. He's talking to the serpent. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here we have this foreshadowing of this first promise of the Messiah, this second mediator of the covenant. And, and yes, the serpent would strike his heel, but this mediator would crush the head of the serpent. Now, God would have been perfectly just just to leave the race of Adam in in that category of sin and death. But in his pure, loving grace, he made a second covenant, what we call the covenant of grace. And that purpose of that covenant of grace was to redeem a people from Adam's race to himself. As I said, that's administered through various smaller covenants of Noah Abraham, Moses, David, and the New Covenant. But they all have this central theme, this mediator, Jesus Christ. To make it a little more clear, we know that all the people of God, Old Testament and New, are saved in the covenant of grace by faith through one mediator. The key to distinguishing the covenants is that covenant head. There was Adam, and there was the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, the most clear uh, enunciation of the covenant of grace, and what I would call the kind of the formal inauguration of the covenant of grace, is found in the passage we read this morning in Genesis. And really, that covenant is, is spread out through Genesis 12, 15, and 17, but you'll see it referred to in Scripture as the covenant. It's one covenant. The most plain announcement of the covenant promise and the one most relevant to us today is in verse 7 of chapter 17 where he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Notice here, this is an everlasting covenant covenant that's what he says everlasting covenant and also notice also that it's not just to abraham but to his offspring and this promise is repeated and echoed throughout scripture strikingly most strikingly to me is at the consummation in the new heavens and the new earth all the way back from abraham we have the sweeping promise to the end of revelation in chapter 21 where it says and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying 
Behold, the dwelling place of, with, of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The covenant promise all the way throughout the scriptures. I think sometimes we get confused by that, that delineation in our Bibles. Old Testament, New Testament. We might tend to think, well, well, before the birth of Christ, the, those people were saved by the sacrificial system, by the laws, right? That's the Old Testament. But we in the New Testament were saved by, by faith in Christ. That's not true at all. all. All the redeemed of God have always been saved by faith in the mediator, Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints looked forward to him, and we look back upon him. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In Galatians 3.27 and 28, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. <clears throat> so, the relationship between B.C. covenant of grace and A.D. covenant of grace is one of fundamental continuity because it is, is really one in the same covenant and one in the same mediator. Now, of course, there are points of discontinuity. I wouldn't deny that. Because there are, namely, the differences between that of promise and that of fulfillment. <clears throat> now, our uh, Baptistic brethren, and I call them Baptistic and not Baptist, because there's lots of people who baptize people as adults or after they confess faith. The Baptistic, and I do mean the term brethren, my closest friends are nearly all Baptists. Can't convince them, <laughs> but we I definitely love them and respect them as brothers. But our Baptistic brethren espouse a view uh, different than than the one I just presented. One of fundamental discontinuity between Old Testament and New Testament, and in particular, our dispensational brethren who would say there are, are seven dispensations and God works differently in each one. And, and they would even go so far as to say that there is not one people of God, but two, or at least some of them would. There's a lot of varieties of dispensationalists, but two peoples of God, the, the nation of Israel and the church. Now that's a different sermon for a, a different day. But the, the dispensational view really, in my view, doesn't represent the, the best the other side has to offer, in my humble opinion. And the side that does have the best of what the other side has to offer is, is the Reformed Baptists. And unfortunately, I find that most books and lectures from, from my camp focus on the dispensationals and not on the, the Reformed Baptists. And that's, I found, to be terribly unhelpful. So I'm going to try to... to uh, focus a little bit on what they would have to say to us this morning. The Reformed Baptists would agree with me on most of what I just said. They're covenantal, 
Uh, they believe in two covenants of Adam and, and with Jesus. And they believe in that the new covenant is of that same covenant of grace as the one with Abraham. And that all the people, God's people, are one people. They would argue, I find, by turning to the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So I'd have you turn there, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. is God's promise in the Old Testament of the coming new covenant and honestly this this argument has been was the biggest sticking point for me to get over um, in discussing infant baptism God says, through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's that covenant promise again. It's reiterated. It doesn't go away in the new covenant. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. That's a glorious text from any perspective. But our Reformed Baptist brethren would would look at verse 32 and they would say, look, it's a a new covenant, right? A fresh covenant. Not like the one I made with their fathers. They would go to verses 33 and 34 and say, see, the law of God is written on the hearts of the members of the new covenant. And he says, and they, they would say, God says, all of them will know God. And God even says, I, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, those descriptions sound an awful lot like a regenerate person, right? So then, the argument goes, members of the Old Testament Abraham covenant were members of the promise via lineage. And so are the New Testament believers, but our lineage is spiritual, not ethnic. It's a purely spiritual offspring. As I just read earlier, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Here's according to the promise. So if all of this is the case, if, if they're regenerate people, if members of the new covenant are regenerate people, then we should require a profession of faith, should we not, before applying the, the sign of baptism? That seems reasonable. The ethnic seed were members of the covenant community in the Old Testament because they were physical descendants of Abraham. Thus they received the covenant sign as infants. But if the seed of Abraham now are the regenerate people united to Christ, shouldn't we wait until the person is in fact regenerate before we apply the sign? Why are we applying the new covenant sign to the ethnic offspring of Abraham's spiritual children? They would ask. 
So I, I don't know, can, can you see the reasoning there? I think it's formidable. I think it's a pretty decent argument. For me, my response to these formidable arguments have come down really to two questions. The first is, is the Abrahamic covenant still in force now? And what really is the makeup of the New Testament or New Covenant Church? Is the Abrahamic covenant still in force? And what is the makeup of the New Covenant Church? So the answer to the first question is, yes, the Abrahamic covenant is still in force. It has not been abrogated, as we saw from Revelation, and it will not be. It is an eternal covenant. It's important to recognize also when you read Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah specifies which covenant is being phased out. He says, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt. This is the covenant of Sinai, not the covenant with Abraham. So when we read, or um, so the Abrahamic covenant and promise are still very much in force, and to the point that we believers are are said, New Testament believers are said to be heirs of the promise. Galatians four twenty eight says, "Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise." Now, I believe that for me, in, in my mind, the linchpin in answering the question of infant baptism lies in answering the question, what is the makeup of the New Covenant Church? To put it more clearly, is the New Covenant community made up of only those who are regenerate, or is it a mixed community? And my answer is that the New Covenant community is by nature a mixed community until Jesus comes back. In other words, it's made up both of true and false converts, uh, covenant keepers and covenant breakers, wheat and tares. And this is seen plainly through the letters uh, in the New Testament. I've been struck by this as we've gone through First and Second Peter. Uh, but people are always identified as, as saints, as beloved. In the beginning of the letters, these are letters to the church, to the covenant community. And at the same time, so many of them are written to warn people not to fall away into heresy. Now, if we believe of perseverance of the saints, which we do, th- those, those warnings would not be necessary if the whole church was regenerate. First Peter even talks about the false teachers who have denied the master who bought them. They've taken upon themselves the name of Christ and they were covenant breakers. So in other words, the new covenant community is a mixed community. It is what we would call the visible church as opposed to the invisible church. This would also include the children of those who believe, because they're part of the visible church. This is manifestly obvious in the way we treat our children in the church and in Christian families. They're treated as part of the Christian community, as members of the Christian community. You know, we don't teach them to pray the Lord's Prayer like our parents' Father who art in heaven, right? Our Father who art in heaven. We don't teach them to sing. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. 
I might be one of them, <laughs> so might you. The kids don't sing that, that they are with us children of Abraham. We treat them as heirs of the promise, and as though the promise of, I will be a God to you and your offspring is still in effect. He is their God, unless at some point they decide or prove otherwise. And to me, what, from what I've seen, that's the default position of every Christian family I've ever observed. This is also obvious from Scripture that they're part of the covenant community. If you turn to Colossians, uh, begin in chapter 1, and we'll go through, I think this is really powerful. I find it to be striking. Colossians, he begins in in chapter 1, verse 2, addressing them as saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So here here they are, the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. And he builds and builds from there through the book of Colossians to the, the glorious deity of Christ and his preeminence in the church. Then in Colossians 1, 22 and 23, He says, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Note there, he leaves room for for the apostatizer. And then we get to this, what I think is the most amazing part of this book of Colossians. It's, it's what I call the hinge pin of Colossians. You have kind of the doctrinal side on one side and the practical side on the other part. And this, this part is the, the pin that holds them together. Colossians 2, 9 through 12. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You see what Paul did there? He he built to this climax of of Jesus Christ. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then kind of unexpectedly, and you have been filled in him. Or he's united us to this Christ who is the fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's amazing. That's That's the hinge pin of Colossians. Then he continues in 11... 12, in him you also were circumcised, made with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, just ignore the relationship now for uh, between baptism and circumcision, and just notice this is powerful union language. You've been circumcised with Christ. You've been baptized with Christ to the point that you join him in his, his death and his resurrection. So here he's still he's talking about the church. Who are the people of God? And then always, as always in these letters, the practical instruction flows from the doctrine. Paul goes on, based on all of this that he said already, based on our resurrection with Christ, to explain how we as God's people are to act. 
He says in, in 3.12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So that flows out of the doctrine. This is because you are united with Christ. And then in 3.18-21, through 21, we have instruction for Christian families. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So do you see where I'm headed with this? Paul includes the instruction to the children in his instruction for the saints. It it all flows directly out of the theology he presented in chapters 1 and 2. I mean, no one would argue that the charge for husbands to love their wives is isolated from the, the teaching about union with Christ. It, it flows from it. So why would we then assume that the instructions to children stand isolated? He puts it even stronger in Ephesians. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children are a part of the covenant community. There's no two ways about it from from what I can see. And now, mind you, they're not truly regenerated or raised or united with Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit making those things a reality. And and when they exercise their own God-given faith. But they are members of that visible family of faith and they bear covenant expectations even as adult believers do. So if that's the case, then they should receive the covenant sign. <clears throat> so, I confess to, to meandering a bit here, but I think that's all relevant to, to what we're talking about, to explaining the simple definition of baptism that I gave earlier, the New Testament sign and seal of the, new, of the covenant of grace. So I've explained kind of the covenant of grace as it pertains to baptism, and now we'll look at sign and seal. Sign and seal. So that terminology, sign and seal, comes from Romans chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul says of Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. If we're going to use this passage to talk about baptism, we have to kind of make some connection between circumcision and baptism. So understanding what I've said already about the continuity of the covenant of grace goes a long way in resolving that issue. But I'd make two further observations here. Um, Both of them are taken from Sinclair Ferguson. Um, So first, back to Colossians 2. He says, "In In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So I don't, I don't want to do a deep dive into the exegesis. There's so many, this is a hotly battled text. But I think whatever position anyone takes about this text, we have to admit that the two signs of circumcision and baptism point to one central reality. This is the subject that Paul is talking about here. 
He's, it, and it's the subject of Christ and our union with Christ. Both signs point to the same reality. If the content of the signs is shared, then I think we're on solid ground in saying baptism is in fact the New Testament sign and seal, even as circumcision was for the Old Testament. The second observation here further connects the two signs, um, and this is a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, Yet with respect to their distinctive covenants and epochs, both baptism and circumcision share the, share the same core symbolism. Both point to the same promise and to the regenerative, divine, indicative, and conversion response imperative arising from that promise, both prior to and in light of its fulfillment in Christ. The fruit of the covenant problem, uh, promise emblematized in circumcision is found in regeneration, in cleansing, and in repentance. Precisely these things are the fruit of Christ's work and the inner significance of baptism. It is a symbol of regeneration, cleansing, and repentance in Christ. He has texts for all of those. If you want them, I can give them to you afterwards. But essentially what he's saying is that the two signs share the same fundamental purpose, and they point to the same thing. And much more, of course, could be said on that. But if the covenant of grace unifies Abraham in the new covenant, and if baptism and circumcision share fundamental core symbolism, I feel confident in saying baptism is the New Testament replacement for Old Testament circumcision. So again, sign and seal. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So two things here. First, it is a sign. Uh, a sign is something that points to something else, another reality. I think perhaps of a road sign, you know, the curve ahead. The sign is not the curve, but it tells you about the curve, points to the curve. Circumcision and baptism are both emblems of greater realities. But they're not mere signs, mere signs of remembrance or a mere token of remembrance. They're also a seal. Uh, I think of a couple of images, think of like a cattle brand. It, it puts the seal of the owner on the, the livestock. Or maybe better would be to think of the, the ring that a king used to have where he would stamp official documents and seal them. And the seal represents the king. It's as though he delivered it himself. And it puts uh, his honor at stake that what's contained in the document both proceeds from and binds him. It's kind of like the covenant of Noah. You know, God said, I, I will not flood the earth again. And he gave us this beautiful sign of the rainbow. But it's not just a sign. It's also a seal that, that, that binds God to his own promise. So the question of utmost importance here as it relates to baptism is, what do the sign and seal point to? What do the sign and seal point to? Abraham's faith, right? No, it's not Abraham's faith. It's the righteousness from God which he had by faith. That's really important because the prevailing evangelical view is that baptism is a sign of my personal faith. It's a testimony of the faith which I have before God and before man. A testimony of my conversion and my faith. So it's largely subjective, and the arrows of action 
point outward and, and upward. In the, in the Bible, however, most often the arrows of action nearly always point downward. From the triune God down to his people. The sign is of the righteousness Abraham had by faith, which was reckoned to him by God, even as it is to us. The signs and seals of the covenant are God's signs and seals. He places them on us. They tell of his work and of his promise. And that righteousness signified and sealed to Abraham in circumcision is the same righteousness signified and sealed to us. And that is namely the imputed righteousness of Christ. So then some brief uh, implications of baptism here. Baptism being the New Testament sign and seal of the covenant of grace. We can look to our own baptism, whether baptized as an infant or as an adult, as God's seal of promise to us that he will be our God and to our offspring. Martin Luther often battled with the devil and he would get irritated and frustrated and he would say, I am a child of God. I am baptized. I believe in Jesus Christ crucified for me. He looked to his baptism to give him confidence in battling the devil. Also, we can claim the promise of God to Abraham for our children, that he will be their God. This, of course, does not mean that the water is somehow magical. It does not mean they're automatically regenerate. Certainly, baptism does not save. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not baptism. But as such, we should pray for our children, that they should be truly regenerate, and that God would grant them the circumcision of the heart, And we should teach them the gospel and the truths of our faith. But at the same time, we can be confident in God's promise as we await the fruit of the Spirit to be manifest in their lives. It's really a grave thing to be baptized because the covenant sign bears with it both the promise of blessing and the promise of curse. We have to remember that. And the horror of modern evangelicalism in the West is that there's a massive numbers of people who have been baptized into the triune name, receive the covenant sign which bears with it both promise of blessing and curse. Thus those hordes who have received the sign but live united instead to the world are, are not just mere pagans, but they are in fact covenant breakers and will be judged as such. Thus, this morning, to place the covenant sign on Abel is a very serious thing. And it's incumbent on us as parents, as family, and friends, and church members that we raise him with as much exposure to the gospel as we can and prayer and discipline while we wait and trust on God's promises. And we should expect from Abel what we expect of all new covenant members, to confess the name of Jesus Christ, to grow in obedience progressively more and more in the fruit of the Spirit and in brotherly love. Ultimately, baptism is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. 
As the people of God, we are united to Christ. We share in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glory. Baptism is a gospel ordinance. It preaches the gospel to us. It is the sign and seal of God's gracious covenant with his people. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen.